Acts chapter 20. So we've been looking at Paul's farewell message to the Ephesian leaders for several weeks now, and we're going to wrap that up today, and then he moves on to Jerusalem, which is where he's been wanting to go for two years. Uh, He's been on a two-year farewell tour of these churches that he's planted um, in Asia Minor, and now he's, he's headed back to Jerusalem under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to pick up in chapter 20, verse 32. Now I commit you, so now that's Paul saying, now I, Paul, commit you, Ephesian leaders, to God and to the word of God's grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was a statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. So Paul's got two closing comments here, two closing thoughts to this group. Again, in his mind, he's never going to see them again. And so he's, this is his farewell Charge And he closes this speech or this message, two thoughts. One, I commit you or I entrust you to God and to his word. This time in history, there was no written New Testament. So you've got the Old Testament, which was written, and you had the words of Paul, really. And Paul is telling them the words of Jesus. He's telling them the gospel. He's, He's been with them for three years, teaching them. And many of those words would become what we have in the New Testament. So he said, I'm committing you to God, and I'm committing you to, in our, in our world, we'd say, into the Bible, into the Word of God. That's what Paul is committing to them, if you are entrusting them to. So these guys, if you remember last week, Paul lays a heavy charge on them. He says, I'm going to be, I'm leaving, and uh, when I'm gone, savage wolves are going to attack this church. And even from within this church, maybe even some of you leaders, Y'all are going to be led astray, and you're going to lead others astray. You're going to distort the truth and, and lead others to do so. And it's y'all's responsibility to keep watch over the flock. It's y'all's responsibility to be on your guard and to shepherd people through that, through all of that deception and all of that heartache when people in your own church turn on you. It's y'all's job to, 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 get, us through, to get these people through. And I'm imagining those leaders, at least some of them, are going, that, that's not me. Some of these guys have, Paul's only been, Paul arrived in Ephesus five years ago. The gospel had not been proclaimed there before. So the the, the oldest Christian, the most mature Christian is five years in his faith. That's it. And some of them would be less than that, for sure. And I bet they're saying to Paul, we don't don't have what it takes to do that. How how are we going to know what this false teaching is? How are we going to protect our flock from these savage wolves. You're leaving, you're not coming back, and you, you just gave us this heavy charge, and we don't think we're up to the task. And what Paul says to them, and in leaving, after, again, he's laid this heavy responsibility on them, is you've got everything you need. I'm leaving, God's not. I'm entrusting you to the care of the Spirit and the Word. That's all you need. That's everything that you need. We'll speak specifically to parents just briefly. That's a good word for us. At some point, your kids are going to leave, hopefully. They're going to leave. 
or you're going to die. One of those two things is going to happen. And they're going to be alone without you. Can you say to them, I've given you every, you have everything you need. You have the spirit and you have the word. That's what you need. Are you raising your kids in such a way that when they're gone or you're gone, they've got two feet that they can stand on. They've got a solid foundation. They know how to hear the Lord. They know what it looks like to follow him. Are you modeling for them a life that says God's the only one who's with us 24-7. Nobody else is. The most hovering of helicopter parents. It's still not 24-7. He's the only one who never leaves. He's the only one who never forsakes. What does it look like for you as a parent to live your life and to instill in your children confidence in who they are in the Lord, confidence that they can hear his voice, confidence that they can go to the word and understand it for themselves, confidence that he is good, that he's never going to let them down. What does it look like for you to be able to say, Paul only had these guys for three years. That's it. It's been five years since he got there, but two of those he's been traveling. So in three years, Paul is able to say to them, I've given you everything that you need. Most of us get much more time than that. Are you raising your kids in such a way that you can with confidence say to them, whether that's at high school graduation or college graduation or when you're walking her down the aisle, or on your deathbed, that you have the confidence to say to them, you've got everything that you need. You've got the spirit and you've got the word. They will see you through. Those, those two gifts from God are all that you need. They can build you up. They can give you an inheritance among the saints. Paul's second thing that he says is, my motives were good. I didn't, I didn't get anything out of this. I didn't want your gold. I didn't want your silver. I didn't want your clothes. I met my own needs with my hands. Paul made leather goods. He said, I took care of myself and I took care of my, the, the guys that were with me, the guys that were on my team. I took care of all of their needs. Paul has an interesting uh, relationship with money. He's very, very aware of the dangers of money. Paul's the one who says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Not money is the root of all kinds of evil, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And he actually says that specifically to people who are leaders in church. It's true for everybody. But he's speaking to people in church leadership. He recognizes the temptation to uh, move yourself into a position of getting versus giving. And, but he has, this, again, this interesting relationship. So just for the sake of clarity, for most of you this doesn't necessarily hit home, but for the sake of clarity, Paul's posture was he never took money for the work that he was doing. So he didn't take money from the Ephesians for his work in Ephesus. When he got there, there was no church. There was no one to support him anyway. He would have looked either to make his own way by making leather goods, or he would have looked for another church that he established to contribute to what he was doing in Ephesus. And then when he left Ephesus, he would look for the Ephesians to support him on to the next thing. That's what he would look for. I worked among you. I gave you what I had. Now it's your opportunity to invest in another city, another place where the gospel's not yet been proclaimed. When Paul left, he left a local church. He established local leadership. And he said, these guys should get paid. It's totally right for these guys who are working among you, who are preaching and teaching and leading. They absolutely should get paid for their work. He actually says that to the Ephesian elders in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy was written to Timothy when he was in Ephesus. And Paul says, it's good and right. 
The worker deserves his wages. And so that was Paul's relationship with money. He never took any from the place that he was serving. He allowed the place uh, where he was serving once he left to contribute to the next stop. And the people he left behind in leadership, he said, it's good and right for those guys uh, to receive money for their work. So, again, that can be confusing at times as you read through Paul. What's he actually saying? Different stages, different philosophy for different stages of ministry. So Paul and his companions, remember, he's got a group. He's taken up a collection from all of these churches he's taken to Jerusalem. He's got a bit of an entourage with him. And now they're all headed to Jerusalem. If you care, here's a map of where... Where, where he goes, he starts in that green star that's Miletus, 30 miles outside of Ephesus. And he takes several boats through those yellow stars. We're about to hit all of those place names that I don't know if you care about or not. And he winds up in Jerusalem. That's been the goal. So two years later, he winds up in Jerusalem, which is where he had set out to go uh, from the beginning. So chapter 21, verse 1. After we had torn ourselves away, so that's Paul and this group. After we torn ourselves away from all of those Ephesian leaders, we put out to sea and we sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre where our cargo was to unload, excuse me, where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, these disciples urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of the church, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre, and we landed at Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. He'd four, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we'd been there a number of days, another prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says in this way the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? That phrase, breaking my heart, is the same phrase that you would use if you were beating your laundry on a rock to clean it. So that's how he he feels they're wearing him out. I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said the Lord's will be done. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Nason, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. So lots of very uh, detailed travel log there uh, for us. As I was reading that, a couple of things to pull out. Paul, when he gets to Tyre and when he gets to his town, Ptolemais, he looks for disciples. And those are places he's never been. Remember, the, the whole theme of Acts is you'll be my witnesses. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, he'll empower you to be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And Luke has focused heavily on Paul, especially the last half of the book. And it's easy to forget that there were lots of other guys who were being obedient. There were lots of other guys who were spreading the good news of Jesus. And we see that. Tyre is a city where Paul never went, and there's a church. Ptolemais is a city where Paul never went, and there's a church. We've talked repeatedly about God's calling on all of our lives to be missionaries. If you're a Christian, you're a missionary. You're a sent one. 
Jesus said, as I was sent, so I'm sending you. When we read about Paul, it can be easy to disqualify ourselves and say, I'm not him. It's not me. Be encouraged. There are other guys who are nameless and they're faceless, but they were effective. They started churches in cities where they went. They spread the gospel in places where people had never heard the name of Jesus. They were effective. They bore fruit. Just because we don't know their names doesn't mean God doesn't. It doesn't mean that they weren't called and empowered by God, and they were fruitful. So be encouraged by that. At least two different cities that we just see in this brief section. Churches were established, and we don't know the names of any of the people who went there. We know it wasn't Paul, but we, don't know, we know it wasn't Peter, but we don't know who it was. Again, nameless and faceless, regular guys, just like us. Then Paul makes his way to Caesarea, which is 64 miles north of Jerusalem. It's a bit of a reunion tour, it seems like. There's Philip, if you remember him from Acts chapter 6. He was one of the guys, one of these seven men who was chosen by the apostles to take care of the widows who were being overlooked. Then there's a big persecution in Jerusalem, and, and Philip leaves, and he goes to Samaria. That was one of those four places, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Um, Philip's the first one to bring the gospel there. He establishes a church in Samaria. He winds up in Caesarea. This is 20 years after um, the last time we saw him in Acts chapter 8. So 20 years later, uh, he's known as Philip the Evangelist. He has four daughters who are prophets. There's a a word about women in ministry. Even in the uh, early church, you see women actively involved in ministry there. These uh, four daughters who prophesied. Uh, We don't know a lot about them. But there's some story around them that two of them lived to be uh, pretty old, and they were vital witnesses to what happened during the time of Acts, and that Luke maybe used them as a source. And so they were, they were well-known in the church up to the point of their death. And we see another prophet who comes, Agabus. We saw him back in Acts chapter 11. He appears to be so, a prophet who's stationed around Jerusalem, and then he goes where the Spirit leads him. In Acts chapter 11, he goes to Antioch, which is a Gentile church, and he goes to this church and he prophesies. He says there's going to be a famine in Jerusalem, and that actually turned out to be the case. And so that stirred this church in Antioch to send money back to the church in Jerusalem so those guys could buy food during the famine. And here we have him, again, led by the Spirit, going 60 miles north to Caesarea. And he acts out a prophecy, which was uh, common in the Old Testament. It seems kind of weird to us, but that was a common Old Testament occurrence. You can see uh, Isaiah does it, Ezekiel does it, Jeremiah does it. He's acting out this picture that he sees from the Lord of Paul being bound. And remember all the way back uh, several weeks ago when Paul set out for Jerusalem, he said, I'm going, I'm tied to the Holy Spirit. I don't know what awaits me, but I know prison and hardship do. And then we see Agabus confirming that, yes. You're going to be, the the Jews are going to bind you and hand you over to the Gentiles. You actually see, as you read through Paul's, uh, this season of his life, you see a lot of parallels to the end of Jesus' life. That that part in particular, the Jews handing uh, him over to the Gentiles. So uh, as we were, I was reading that, uh, one of the things that we emphasize here at Stonebridge is listening to God, following the leading of the Spirit, uh, God speaking to the body, through the body. And that's good and right, and it's a, it's a kingdom value, and it's absolutely scriptural. And you can see here one of the places where it can, you can get bunched up. One of the places where you can kind of get tripped up on this whole idea of hearing God. So we have Paul saying, God has spoken to me. The Holy Spirit is leading me to Jerusalem. And then in chapter 21, verse 4, we have a Christians, love the Lord, people entire, who through the Holy Spirit say, Paul, don't go. So we have the Holy Spirit 
compelling Paul, that's his word, to go. We have other Christians through the Spirit saying, Paul, don't go. And then we have Agabus coming and through the Spirit giving this prophecy and the church saying, don't, don't, you don't need to go. And then Paul eventually says, you're killing me. Like, you're wearing me out. And they say, okay, if we can't persuade you, then let God's will be done. That's not necessarily a ringing endorsement of what Paul's doing. Seems like more of a concession than anything else. And so when it comes to this whole idea of hearing God, kind of how do we walk through it? There's three stages of hearing God, and we can see them here. And you gotta, you gotta check every box. There's, uh, and this is true whether you're reading the word or kind of you have these nudges or these prophetic words. So I'm gonna try to separate those two just for the sake of ease. When you're reading the Bible, God speaks to us through the Bible, there's three questions that you ask. What does it say? What does it mean? And what does it mean to me? Those three questions. Some of you are familiar with the inductive Bible study. Observation, interpretation, application. Every passage that you're reading, that's what you're asking. What does it say? Which is, that's, if you can read, then you know what it says. If you're not reading, then you don't know what it says. You never get to what does it mean for me because you don't know what it is. First step, what does it say? Literally, what does it say? It says Paul traveled from Miletus to Ephesus or to, to Jerusalem in a boat and he stopped at these cities and they had this exchange. It's just that. What does it say? Then what does it mean? What do the words mean? What do the, what do the interactions mean? And for some of us, that's where we, that gets a little tricky and we say, well, I don't know what it means. I'm not qualified to understand what it means. You absolutely are qualified to understand what it means. God gave us the Bible as revelation. He meant it to be understood. If you need help, get a study Bible. They cost $40. You can get them for $10 on a Kindle. And it will help you tremendously with what it means. If, you don't under, if, if there's things that you don't understand about culture or history and those things will be helpful for you, get one of those Bibles. And then what does it mean to me? God, what are you saying to me through this? And that's very personal and very individual. Bo and I, read, it's going to mean the same thing. But it's going to mean something different to Bo than it is to me. We're in different spots in life. We're different people. We wrestle with different things. So it very well could be that our application is different. Our observation's the same. It says what it says. The interpretation is the same. It means what it means. But the application, what it means to each one of us personally and individually, can be different. The same thing is true when it comes to being led by the Spirit. Dreams, visions, prophetic words from other people, Agabus coming and acting out a prophecy in front of you. If somebody does that, it would be a little weird, but it's biblical. If somebody does that to you, they act something out. Or you have a nudge in your heart. That moves you in one direction or another. You're asking the same three questions. What's being said here? Like literally what is being communicated to me? What does that mean? And then what is, what's a faithful response to that? What am I supposed to do with that? And we see here in Acts 21. They fall apart on the last piece. They get what God is saying. Paul says the Holy Spirit's leading me to Jerusalem in difficulty in prison awaiting me. In Tyre, it's the same thing. They know there's difficulty facing Paul. That's why they're telling him not to go. Agabus acts out the prophecy. You're going to be put in chains. 
They're all getting what it says, what the Spirit is saying, and they get what it means. It means Paul's not going to be free to travel around anymore. He's an apostle to the Gentiles. He's the most effective church planter in history, and absolutely during this time. And they're saying he's not going to have freedom of movement any longer. 100% agreement on what's being said and what it means. Where they're dropping the ball on, well, what does it mean to Paul? Or, or what, what are we supposed to do about that? Their assumption is God would not lead Paul to jail. God wouldn't put Paul in a position where he can be arrested. God wouldn't want Paul chained where he didn't have freedom of movement. If he's an apostle to the Gentiles, if his thing is going from city to city to city, planting churches, well, he can't do that if he's in jail. So obviously, Paul, the interpretation of this, or the application of this, excuse me, is don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go to Jerusalem. And they're 100% wrong. They miss it on the application piece. They're absolutely hearing the Holy Spirit correctly. They got it. He is saying difficulty awaits Paul. Chains await Paul. Prison awaits Paul. And they absolutely understand what that means for Paul. It means he will not have freedom of movement any longer. But they completely miss what they're supposed to do about it or what the faithful response is. You need to get all three of those things right. That last piece especially. What does it mean to you? This is super important if you're in relationships with other people. When they're talking to you about the way the Lord is leading them. When they're talking to you about the things God's stirring in their heart. The question you need to be asking. What, is it, what does a faithful response look like for them? Hebrews 12 talks about casting off things that hinder and, and sin that entangles us. You don't want to be a thing that has to be cast off. You don't want to get in the way of other people running their race. You don't want somebody saying to me, it's like you're beating me against a rock. For Paul, it's hard enough to go. If He's saying, even if it means death, I'm going. But you think about that. Think about walking into a city where you, you very well could die. That's not an easy thing to do. And if the people who should be supporting you and encouraging you and loving you and spurring you on to love and good deeds are saying, don't go, don't go, don't go. I mean, think how hard that is. We don't want to be that for people. We want to, on that last piece, what is a faithful response? We want to make sure we're asking the Lord about that. God, what does that look like in their life? What does that look like for them to be faithful? Not what do I want for them. Not what I would assume you would want for them. What, what are you actually doing here? And, it, and for Paul, he was convinced. And thankfully, he was convinced and he was convicted around going to Jerusalem. And he does. And it works out really. He does get thrown in jail. We'll see that next week. But it works out really well for him, at least in the short term. So, we, again, we don't want to be things that, that hinder other people from running their race. We don't want to be. We don't want our, our interpretation or our application, uh, to, ca- to cause others to stumble. So we want to get all three of those pieces right again. Whether you're, whether you're reading the Word, you need to be working through that process. If it's something that's more direct from the Holy Spirit, dream, vision, nudge, prophetic word from some, some, somebody else, however the Holy Spirit speaks to you, you want to be working through that same process. Bringing other people into the mix as well, particularly around that application piece. They can really help you. With, as people who are maybe helping someone else, we want to make sure we're being 
uh, we're submitting to the Lord in that as well. And the more you love somebody, the harder that can be. When they're coming to you with something, it's easy to insert your opinion. It's easy for you to say, oh, this is an opportunity subconsciously with the best of intentions to try to steer people's life in the direction that you want it to go. Be aware of that as you do. Uh, Last thing, when I was reading this, the thing that really jumped out at me was the importance of the word and the spirit. We want to be people of both. We want to be people of the word and we want to be people of the spirit. That's what Paul says. I'm committing you to God, the Holy Spirit. That's who lives within you if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit uh, comes and dwells within you. We talk about Jesus uh, living in our hearts. He doesn't. He's seated at the right hand of God. It's the Holy Spirit who lives within your heart. You're born again by the Spirit of God. If you're a Christian, again, the Holy Spirit lives within you. And and Paul's saying, I'm I'm trusting him in you. I'm trusting the Spirit that God has put in you. It's his Spirit. And I'm entrusting you to the Word that he's given to you. And again, for us, that's the Bible. And we want to be people of the Word, and we want to be people of the of the Spirit. In my mind, when I think of the Word, I think of a riverbed. It's the thing, it directs, it, it's the course that the river runs. This is not about intellectual um, knowledge or academic understanding. For me, this is about forming and shaping your heart. Something is going to. Absolutely. Everybody moves towards their understanding or their definition of success or their understanding or their definition of the good life. Whatever it looks like for you, your front porch and your sipping lemonade or whatever you're doing at that point. When you look back, what's the scorecard for you? How are you going to know that you did a good job? Like, what are, what are the check marks? What are you being graded? What are you grading yourself on? Can you be explicit about that? Because you're moving towards those things right now. Those are the things that you're giving yourself to right now, whether, again, that's explicit or just uh, or, or not. That's the stuff that you're doing. Those are the things that you're prioritizing. And what I want to say is to be a person of the word is to allow the word to shape that definition of success. To allow the word to form that sense of priority and value. There's over 31,000 verses in the New Testament in the Bible. You can find a, a verse to justify any behavior. And people have throughout history. Slavery. The Nazis. I mean, all of it. All of it people, polygamy, you can find a verse for everything. So this isn't about quoting verses. This is about the total revelation of Scripture forming and shaping what you have set, what, what for you would be success and a good life. There's more to the Bible than this, but the core of the Bible is God, it's a biography. It's God revealing himself. Here's who I am. And God revealing what he's doing. This is my activity. And you allow those two things, my prayer, is that you would allow those two things to form and shape your understanding of success in your own life. God is righteous, and he desires that we be conformed into his image. So what does that say about us? And what's important? And what we should go for? God is forgiving. He's compassionate. He desires us to be conformed to his image. So what does that say about us and what we should go for? God is holy. And he desires us to be conformed to his image. So what does that say about us and what we should go for? That's allowing the word, not necessarily a verse, but allowing the full, the full picture of the word to shape your character, what your life looks like. God, primarily, God's doing two things. He's forming a people and he's establishing a kingdom. 
Throughout the Bible, that's what you see him doing. In the Old Testament, it's, it's through the Jews. He says, Abraham, I'm picking you out of everybody else. And through you, I'm making a nation. And this nation is going to bless other nations. And in the New Testament, he says to us, your spiritual Israel, he adopts us into his family. He brings, he grafts us into his body. He's forming a people. So what does that say about how we define success and what a good life is? Am I cooperating with God and forming a people for himself? God is establishing a kingdom. You see in the Old Testament, literally through the military and the political kingdom of Israel, God is saying, here's what it looks like to live under my rule and reign. In the New Testament, we see that spiritually through us, through the church, driving back the kingdom of darkness and establishing the kingdom of the son that he loves. So what does that say about success? And the good life, how am I contributing? How am I cooperating with God in the establishment of his kingdom? If I'm not doing those two things, if I'm not cooperating with God and forming a people or establishing his kingdom, I'm, I'm missing it. I'm not talking about your salvation. I'm talking about your life, your legacy, the well done at the end. That's what I'm talking about. Are you allowing the word to shape that definition of success for you? Are you allowing the word to shape priority for you, to shape values for you? If you don't, something else will. And you're going to move in that direction. I don't know how else to allow the word to shape you other than to read it. And again, I'm not talking about verses. I'm talking about the whole thing immersing yourself in the Bible from now until you were a long period of time. This is not a sprint. Allowing the Bible over a long period of time to so infuse your thinking that it forms and shapes your opinions and your values and your priorities. That, that does not happen in six months. It's a great start, but it doesn't happen in six months. It doesn't happen through one Bible study. This is a lifetime of saying, God, I'm reading this. I'm reading Leviticus right now. It's terrible. And I'm asking the Lord, you got to tell me something. How in the world does the way people treat fabric that's moldy? What does that have to do with anything? You got to show me something about who you are and about what you're doing through this. I'm going to read it fast and move on. I'm going to read it, ingest it, let it form you and shape you. You want to be a person of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit's the water in the river. You've got the riverbed, that's the Word. And the water, the life, is the Holy Spirit. Again, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives within you already. He's the enabler, He's the empowerer, He's the one who accomplishes the work of God in you and through you. Galatians 3.3, Paul says to the Galatian church, are you foolish? You foolish Galatians, having begun in the spirit, and we've all begun in the spirit because that he's the one that brought us to life. So if you're a Christian, then you began in the spirit. Are you now trying to finish in your flesh? That's where so many of us live. We were born of the spirit, and then we try to carry on the, the life of God in our own strength, in our own flesh. It's not the way God intended. Paul entrusts the Ephesians to the Word and to the Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives within you. He wants to lead you. He wants to guide you. He wants to empower you. Your response is to yield to Him. That's it. It's submission. 
Holy Spirit, I yield to you today. I humble myself before you and I pray that you would lead me today. Guide me. Empower me. There are people who need to hear things that I don't know. There are people who need things accomplished in their life that I can't do. I'm asking you to use me. Rarely, it's not Popeye eating a can of spinach and you get really, you know, your arms get big. and It's not what it is. Normally, very little feelings associated with that prayer. What God wants to know is, will you trust me as your Father in heaven who gives the Holy Spirit to everyone who asks? And so when you pray, fill me. When you pray, lead me. Will you trust that he is doing that even if you don't feel different? That's what faith is. God, I'm trusting you to meet me. I'm trusting you to lead me. I'm trusting you to guide me and empower me, even when I don't feel any different. So I'm going to step into this situation. I'm going to choose to open my mouth and share with somebody a word of encouragement. I'm going to choose to get involved in an area where I see darkness and injustice, even though it scares me to death. I'm choosing to get involved. I'm choosing to say, Holy Spirit, if I've yielded to you, you're going to empower me. Father, if I've asked, you're going to give. Be a person of the word and a person of the spirit. Here are four pictures. I want you to pick one. If you haven't yet made a decision, a decision, decision to follow Jesus, none of these four apply to you. I'd love to talk with you about that and how we could answer questions or move forward terms of your understanding of who Jesus is and what that means for you. One of these four pictures, and I want you to pick. Many of us live in that top left corner. We've said yes to Jesus. We've received the Holy Spirit. It's like a, he's like a pond. Neither the Word nor the Spirit impacts our Monday to Saturday. We're just doing our own thing. God's got this portion of our heart which secures our eternal uh, inheritance, it, it secures our place, but that's it. We're doing our own thing. We're oblivious or we're ignorant or we're busy or whatever, but God is not, we're not looking to be led. We're not looking for the Bible to form and shape. We're Christians for sure. We love God on whatever level we love God, but he's not impacting how we live our life on a daily basis. That top right corner, dry riverbed, Word without the Spirit, very common in the Bible Belt where we live. People know the truth. People can quote some Bible. People have a sense of kingdom values. But they're dry as dust. Two different kind of ends of that. Some, it's the Pharisees. It's people who, they, they, they got it. They can, they're going to beat you in the Bible quiz. But there's death in what they're saying. There's There's... No love, there's no life. It's all about being right and shouting down people who are wrong. For some people, it's, it's not that at all. There's good intentions. I know what God, I, God wants me to love my enemies, and I'm trying really hard, but it's just making me tired. God wants me to pray for those who persecute me. God wants me to turn the other cheek. God wants me to honor my parents. God wants me to not exasperate my children. God wants me to serve the people who he's, uh, I'm in leadership over, whatever those things are, there's us out to try to do it. Very common in the church today, especially where we live. There are so many good teachers, and their teaching is readily available. You can stream it, podcast it, read about it. You can do all that stuff. And for so many, 
It's just a bunch of good advice and, a good, informa- and good information. And they're saying, how do I implement this? And they're trying to do it in their own strength, and it's wearing them out. And that may be where you are. You have a, the riverbed has been cut, but it wears you out to think about that direction for your life. Less common, but sometimes. Bottom left corner, spirit without the word. You see this in there are certain pockets of the church with a capital C where you see this. People, spiritual excess. People in the name of the Holy Spirit just tearing people down. Trail of broken bodies. If that's what you've got, if you look back and you've got a trail of broken bodies behind you, that may be you. you you're, you're maybe really spiritual and you hear the Lord and you know the Holy Spirit lives within you and empowers you. But there's no sense of the word, the character of God and the purposes of God forming and shaping your life. It's like a flood. It just causes destruction. Bottom right corner is where you all want to be, a healthy river. People of the word and the spirit. So where are you this morning? Let's pray. I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm just going to ask the Lord to speak, kind of working off of that. What's it say? What's it mean? What's it mean to me? That's what I want you to be asking. I've told you what it says, and I've told you what it means, and I want you to ask the Lord, what does it mean to me? In your own heart, God, what does it mean for me to be a man or a woman of the Word and a man or a woman of the Spirit? There's a thousand ways of walking that out. There's a thousand ways of applying that truth. You don't need to copy anyone else. Be led by the Spirit. Hear the voice of God. Dig into the Word. What's he, how is He asking you to do that? This morning. So Holy Spirit, would you speak to the men and the women in this room? God, I want to entrust them to you and to your word and trust your voice in their heart. And so, God, I pray that you would speak application to them and to me. Show each one of us what does it mean for us to be a person of the word and a person of the spirit. God, if there are any here today who've not yet said yes to you. I pray that you would just you'd stir a hunger. There'd be a desire in them to live a life of purpose, free of guilt and condemnation, full of love and power. I you to hear this morning, Jesus didn't die to make bad people good. You don't need to try to figure that out. Jesus died to make dead people come to life. Your response to him is thank you. So Holy Spirit, come now in these next couple of minutes and speak to each one of us. Show us what it means to us. In Jesus' name, amen.